says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord and Lord. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul and Timothy have this relationship like I have this, this great affection for the chaplain that was so instrumental in my life. There was another guy. His name was uh, Zeddy Kratz with the Navigator. So there's, there's two men that are very responsible uh, for putting me on the right, right footing. But to Timothy, Paul is this guy. In the Bible, like if you read multiple, you've got to read a lot of books, but you can kind of put together Timothy's story. And Timothy, uh, in the book of Acts, he came from uh, Lystra. It was in Galatia. His father was a Greek, but his mother was Jewish. Her name was Eunice. Uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother taught Timothy the scriptures from the time of his youth. We find that out in 2 Timothy. So he, Timothy's got this lineage where he's, he's half Greek, half Jew, right? And Paul calls him a true son of the faith. And, and most scholars agree that Paul had led Timothy's mother to the faith on Paul's first missionary journey. This is counted in Acts 14 and 16. This also expresses Paul's confidence in Timothy's integrity and faithfulness to the truth because he has been taught the scriptures from a young age. He's like my son in the faith. So we see here the flame of the gospel that was in Paul went to Timothy's mother, to his grandmother, now on to Timothy. Timothy has the job. He's urged in uh, verse 3. He says, I urge you to remain in Ephesus. So if we want to know what is the point of uh, 1 Timothy, is Paul saying... I'm going to ask you to stay in Ephesus, right? right? He said, he goes, I, re- I told you in person when I was in Macedonia to stay in Ephesus. He goes, I'm writing this letter to ask you to remain in Ephesus. So, well, why would Paul have to ask an elder or a pastor to stay at the church? Like, what's going on? And that's what 1 Timothy is about. He's going to talk about personal things and public things that are happening in this church. See, after prison, Paul returned to the city of Ephesus, and he discovered that during his absence that Ephesus had become the center of false teaching. This was a sad fulfillment of the prediction he made to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Um, let me read a couple of verses here. And this is the prophecy that, that Paul gives about Ephesus. He says, now, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, by the way, and we're going to pick up here. He says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders in the church to come to him. We're going to jump a few verses here. It says, he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is a heavy prophecy, right? It's like saying, Trace and I are going to leave the church. After we leave, there's going to be a bunch of false prophets coming. Like, what the hey? New pastors come in, and then all of a sudden this happens. It's like a bunch of false prophets. So this is what Timothy is dealing with. So Paul is, is fully aware of what's happening in Ephesus. Now, what does this have to do? So why did I kick off with the chaplains and the flame and passing the torch? Like, yeah, it would make sense on one level. But if you don't hear anything today, hear this, because he's going to start talking about these false teachers. The flame of the gospel, if it is not true, cannot remain. What is false has to fall away. So what we ignite and impart to people, if it's not the truth, it will fall away. And when that person experiences adversity and challenges and trials, which we all do, 
if what has been taught to them isn't true, that's how people fall away. Right? Because you can't anchor yourself to a lie. False prophets and false teachers and false doctrine, it shipwrecks faith. Right? Because you start to trust in a lie, and when that lie doesn't deliver, what do you think about the whole package? It's nonsense. Right? So the flame of the gospel has to be a true flame. Right? And that's why we work hard to think about what we teach and to preserve unity and doctrine. Now, we all may make mistakes. I think I preached my first message maybe 15 years ago, and I would roll over and die if anybody heard it. <laughs> not because, you know, just, I'm not saying I've gotten better, but I'm sure my doctrine was pretty wacky. So there's grace, right? I'm not saying we have to be perfect, but it's an intent in the heart, right? Because somebody says here that people want to draw away their own disciples. They want a kingdom, though. They want to be lifted up, right? Have you ever seen pastors do that where it's about them and their ministry? It's no longer about Jesus. God tolerates mistakes. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be a quiz. There's not going to be a Bible quiz on your doctrine. Hey, what did you think about the rapture? Hey, what did you think about sovereignty? What did you think about this? Because we're all going to miss it. Like, none of us are perfect. We're not, you know. Well, there was one perfect guy, right? But we killed him. That's a joke. That's not mine. Okay. Nobody laughed. Anyways, that was actually from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Sorry. Quote sources here. Because I know Sarah's looking at me. like, I know who said that. Okay. You get my point, right? Hopefully. So, if it's not truth, it cannot abide. It's not on the screen, but 2 John 1, 2 says this. He says, the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. When I talk about the chaplain, Thomas Cyril, that helped me, is because when life got tough, it's actually the truth of the scripture that he taught me that got me through it. We all have this Bible here. But you have a Bible, and you can get it on online, you have it on your phone. But if we're being honest with you, most of you probably don't read this. I don't say this to you, but if, if, if we, we split the room and we were really being honest, most of you don't read your Bible. What you know of the Bible is actually what you hear. You know from the stories we tell each other, you hear from the pastor, you hear from talking to other Christians. So most of your Christian experience is filtered through another human being. It's just being honest, right? And there's a handful <coughs> of Christians that take the responsibility to read the Word. Right, and try to understand it. And thank God for men and women like that, that you know, inject truth. Because you'll get into a room, and, and I remember this from being a young Christian, because there's like four or five of us sitting there talking about the Bible. None of us had ever been Christians. I didn't come from a Christian family. So when I get saved, you know how much I know about the Bible? I'm, I'm starting at ground zero. I'm a blank slate. There's a guy named Jesus. He's got a dad. And I'm a sinner. That's about what I know. I know cultural Christianity. And I'm from Oregon, so it's not even like I'm in the South where it's cultural. It's like it's anti-God up there, right? So imagine five people like that talking about God, trying to enlighten one another. You know how much nonsense is being spoken in these things? You know, it's like we just don't know any better. So all that to say, we're not reading it. And the truth we hear comes from another. That's why there's a great responsibility of those that communicate the gospel is to really try to understand the truth, try to understand the heart of it. And this is why Paul is going to write this really long letter to Timothy saying, hey, the wolves have come in. There's false doctrine being spread from your church. And that's the fastest way to kill a church, to kill a movement. Because if it's false, then you know, God honors his word. If it's not his word, he doesn't have to honor it, right? I mean, it's the whole thing that just falls apart. Okay. Now, Paul had probably dealt with these false teachers personally when he was there. This doesn't seem to be like Paul left it to the new guy to take care of. 
He goes, but soon found it necessary to leave Macedonia. So once Paul left, the wolves came in. He left Timothy in charge of the affairs at Ephesus as his own personal representative. He knew that Timothy had a difficult job to carry out, so he hoped the letter would both equip and encourage him to the task. Now, by telling uh, Timothy to remain in Ephesus, uh, another thing we can kind of glean from this is it seemed that Timothy actually wanted to give up and leave. Right? So you don't have to encourage someone to stay if they want to stay. Right? So we can read into the text that Timothy wants to leave. Right? Do you think that's a fair assumption? Paul told, he's like, when I was there in person, I told you to stay. Now I'm writing this letter asking you to stay in Ephesus. Right? So now Timothy, faced with the challenges he's at, is at a point where he's just getting crushed by all this. Because ministering in a tough spot can be life-crushing. Has anyone been in a church that's being crushed like that? Like bad things are happening in church? If, if you would, raise your hands. If you've been in a church and bad things are happening, doesn't it just kind of suck the life out of everything? Like church becomes a burden. The ways on you. It's, like, it's just a different, it's like spiritual things just hurt differently. Right? Because you can be going through a mess at work and it sucks, but you know, then you leave. Right? If you're in the military, you're like, well, I'm out of here two years anyways. Right? But your church, like, this is family. Like, you're invested. Like, it sounds like a marriage, right? So you can see the pain that Timothy is going through. Now, despite um, him wanting to leave, um, I think, and I think Paul thinks, that there's no doubt that God wants Timothy to remain in Ephesus. I'm going to put this on the board. I, I don't want to. I don't want to beat too much up on this chapter because there's good stuff coming in the coming weeks. But I, I view First Timothy, and this isn't my idea. That what you're going to see on the board is taken from a commentary. But he gives them six reasons in chapter one. This is how chapter one is broken down of why he should see it. Ephesus. So go ahead and put this next slide up there, brother. So I'm not going to read all of the text. You can read it. Uh, again, this is high level stuff. So he kind of exhorts me. He says, Timothy, you need to stay because they need the truth. You know, simply you can't leave because you're a needed minister in a hard place. Timothy, you need to say because God uses unworthy people. He's addressing the fact that maybe, hey, maybe, Timothy, maybe you feel like you're not worthy at the task. And Paul kind of talks about how he was a heathen, right? He was one of the worst guys ever. He says, because you serve a great God. He says, Timothy, you've got to say because you're in a battle and you cannot surrender. He says, Timothy, you can't leave because not everyone else stays. People leave. Right? Hard places drive people out. It's the men and women who stay behind and things are brutally tough. Again, these are not my words, friends. I, I give you the source if you want the commentary, but this is someone else's idea as you see on the screen. But it's worth noting that God will allow us to be in difficult situations, that we must set our minds to meet the challenge, or we will give up. I was talking to Pastor Trace about this yesterday. Was it, maybe it wasn't Trace. I talk a lot. I talk to somebody. And man, what's Trace? We were I was discussing how the fact is we become all of us become Christians at different times. And it's a lot like being in the military. Sometimes uh, I actually I was telling Jack this morning, it's like my time in the Air Force, I, I really served in a lot of a time of peace. Like September eleventh happened midway through, the Air Force pulled me, sent me to be a recruiter. So my experience in the military was one of I played a lot of golf, um, made great friends, I went to Bible college, the Air Force paid for my graduate degree. I mean I just I have this wonderful story of how easy the military was. I know you're saying it's because you're in the Air Force. Take it easy. No, it's not. It's just like life happened very well for me. Like, you know those kind of people where they just, everything falls into place, they don't have to do anything right now in their life. And some people go into the military and they're at war for four straight years. They come back as broken as a 
right? I mean, we, time and circumstances happen to us all. Imagine being uh, drafted in the 40s, right, or the Vietnam era. And it's totally different for the guys that served in the 80s, right? Christianity is much like that. You can get saved, and you can just live in an area and time where it's pretty much peace and good times. You live in a great community, you have a great church, and you have a great family. And church really is just having casseroles in life, and life is good. Do you know those kind of people where they've really had no adversity in life? There's been no death, there's been no heartache, there's always been money, and they're, they're, they're true believers. And everyone would love to be like that, but not all of our paths look like that. Some people are born into adversity where they go to church in their community, and their homes are broken, and their church is broken, and their jobs are broken, and there's not enough. And so their view of the world and Christianity is totally different. And it's like that if you get into ministry and where you serve. Sometimes you just serve in a great spot with great teams and great people and life is good. You can't wait to do it. And sometimes you get stuck in ministry and it's just like every day is tilling hard earth. It's a challenge to keep yourself motivated to work with these people. But no friends, that, that is not a sign that you are not in God's will. Some people will teach you that. Right? That if you don't have the supernatural favor of God opening up doors and getting paid, then you've done something wrong. No, God needs people in adversity. God needs people in hard places. God needs people around broken people. Hurt people hurt people. We know this. So I would say if you're in one of those areas of life and your work, your home, hopefully not this church, God needs you. Right? Really think about it. If you feel like giving up, don't, don't judge your surroundings based upon God's blessing upon God had called Timothy and Paul to the city of Ephesus, and false teaching was running rampant. Right? To me, when things are going bad, that actually is a sign that God is there. I know that sounds counterintuitive. But the Bible says when the enemy comes in, God, like a flood, lifts up a standard against him. Right? The enemy, he's, he's going to talk about this at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, you know, fight this good fight of faith. Friends, we're in a fight. That was one of our points. You've got to stay there because you're in a battle and you can't quit. Most people don't, like I said, the people that go through good times don't view Christianity like that. It's a battle. Like we have an enemy. I don't know what you think about evil and Satan and all these things. It's not like there's a devil behind every bush. But the Bible does say we have an adversary. Alone, we have ourselves as an adversary, our old selves. That picture of Michael Young I showed you circa 1997-98, he's not a good guy. He's very selfish. He's always looking out for people who know. But he wants what he wants. He doesn't, he doesn't care who he has to hurt to get. He doesn't mind telling lies. He doesn't mind doing all these things. He's a broken human being. Now, I've been made a new creation in Christ, but guess what? That old person is still there. 25 years later, that broken guy still wants to resurrect sometimes. I've told you before, it happens when I drive. <laughs> I think it happens to a lot of you. Like I say things and think things that are not good driving. And living in California for over 20 years now, I'm sure when I'm driving across Canada, people are actually talking about me as I'm talking about them. Because I've heard a couple times when people drive with me, it's like, yeah, well, this isn't California, buddy. You've know, you got to use your blinker and you got to slow down. But all that to say, I'm still working this evil out of me. So God allows us to be in difficult situations. So I'm not going to read through that big chunk of text there in the middle here, but I wanted to focus in uh, as we wrap up our time together. Skip towards the end of 1 Timothy. And there's a number. You, if you've got questions, if I'm skipping over your favorite verse, you have a question about something, right? Well, I mean, text it to me. You know, I can talk to you about it. We can try to do our best to answer it. I'm not here. But 
But remember, this is a wave top thing, right? So we're looking at why Paul is writing this letter, and we're looking at the ramifications about the man. If you think of the New Testament letters like this, especially like Timothy, some letters are all for public consumption, like Romans, to be read to the church at Rome, right? So this letter was delivered and read, and this is a private letter for public and personal application, First and Second Timothy, right? So some of the letter is going to be to address how to address the church, and some of these things he's going to tell Timothy, like, Timothy, you need to drink some more wine for your stomach. Like, this is a personal letter. So imagine, like, being able to, like, if you would read a letter from Thomas, you know, Chap- Chaplain Cyril to me, Michael, this is what I need you to do. It's highly personal, right? Like, he knows this man. They've done ministry together. And it's just a nice insight into this relationship. So at 1 Timothy, let's read 18, verses 18 and 20. He writes this, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about me, that by them you may wage the good warfare. I'll pause there for a second, Jeff. We can go back, sir. Um, and Timothy has some kind of prophecy over him, which is fascinating, right? He's like, look, you need to wage warfare. It's like, you were given these prophecies about the ministry. You need to stand on his wage good work. Okay, next one. Holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting the son have made shipwreck of this faith. Rejecting the faith they've made shipwreck of this faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I've handed over to Satan that they were not to blaspheme. Okay. I want to talk about this because this is some weirdness. But if we go back, he says, by them that you may wage a good warfare. The focus is not the prophetic word that Timothy heard in the past. The focus is the battle that is right in front of him now, where he must wage this good warfare. That is, the King James says, to fight the good fight. Timothy had a job in front of him that was going to be a battle, and it wasn't going to be easy or comfortable or carefree. He had to approach the job Paul left him to do in Ephesus as a soldier approaches a battle. And yet he gives Timothy another reason to remain in Ephesus, he should sense a responsibility to stay when he felt like leaving because he was like a soldier in a battle who could not desert his post. If you, I don't know how you view life in your circumstances, but I do think when it comes to Christian things, you should view it as your responsibility to stand. The Bible says it another way, having done all to stand, stand. Your job is to stand firm. They're tough things to think about. To stand firm in the face of adversity, a culture that is, is hostile to Christianity. 20, 30 years ago, it was indifferent to Christianity. To me, mentally, it went from indifferent to hostile. I think our culture is actively against Christianity. Right? Because they like to take the worst of Christianity by worst not Jesus, but the worst of his people, how they act. And that's what gets amplified. Right? If a Christian does something dumb... You don't hear about all the good stuff they do. You hear about the dumb stuff. Right? So there's a character of who we are as people, what we believe in our values. And then you see what culture of Christianity, what it says about it. You're like, well, that's not Jesus. That's not who I am. But you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Because once you think something about somebody, you know, that's how stereotypes are born, right? This is how racism happens. This is how, these, this is how hate is born, right? Because you think. What one person does applies to an entire people group. So I guess it's fair that I just hate everybody, that people group, because these people think like this. Now, is that narrow-minded, yes or no? Is that wrong? Boy, that was not a resounding yes. (laughs) 
Is it right to think, because of what one person does, to think that about an entire people group? No. No. Please, I, I pray to God that you believe that, right? Right? Because if you're like, hey, Mike Young did this, it's like, okay, therefore all white, bald males act like this. It's just not fair to all white, bald males, right? Right? Yes. Now, you could say we all sunburn, sure. Okay, some, some of these things are true. Right, fair, fair enough. So these are, these are terrible things that happen. But this is, you don't realize this, but this is happening to us as Christians. Because the world thinks what a Christian is, they have a stereotype. And it's all the bad things that Christians have ever done. It's not all the good things. It's all the bad things. Right? Not good. Wage the good warfare. So when you're in a battle to stand up for what is right, it's going to be harder and harder. This is the, this is the battle war. Because it's not going to be easy to say you follow Jesus. No, it might change in the next election, and this is a political statement, so let your guard down. But every president that's ever ran has had to say they're a Christian. Like, that's just part of it. If you're going to win the vote, like, you better be a Christian, right? And the people get in office, and you always raise their eyebrows, like, that guy's not a Christian. They say they do. They carry a Bible. I'm not going to say who. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But the point is, this got you votes. And I, here's a prophecy for you, right, is I think in our near future, it'll be popular to distance yourself from Christianity. I think in the, in the next election or two cycles we'll have a first agnostic or, or a different faith president moving away from Christianity. So as the world pushes that, he's gonna, I'm not going to ruin it forever gets to preach on it, but Paul's going to talk about, to Timothy about how there's going to be a great falling away from the church. I think that's happening now. And so for us to be able to remain, stand and fight is going to matter. When I talked about the flame of, of the true gospel being uh, passed, that's why I said that's why it has to be true. Because when this persecution comes, and if you believe a bunch of weird things, if you don't read your Bible and all you've been hearing is weird stuff, you're gonna, maybe you're gonna crumble. The pressure's gonna come, and you're gonna have nothing to hold on to, because it's all gonna be lies. It's all gonna be non-truth, and you're gonna think this whole thing is a big crock, anyways. You're gonna be blown away. And I hate to say it, some have shipwrecked their faith. And he gives us a couple names. You didn't know how to stand. You didn't stand on the bedrock. You stood on the sand. Believes the lie. The Bible says other things like they have itching ears. They just want to hear things that make me feel good. I and mean, we all want to hear things. I, man, there's so many encouraging things in this Bible. But I have to tell you the truth sometimes. It's not all good. Right? I believe God heals. I believe God raises the dead. But I also know Christians die. I also know that Christians get sick. I have to, I have to live in this balance of both. I know that some people get promoted, but I know some Christians who just have a whole life of getting crushed. How do these two things exist? The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. The Bible in the King James says he is not a respecter of persons. That means God doesn't have favorites. We're all made in his image. Right? He loves his creation. He even loves the people that are not serving him and running away. Like we learned about Jonah. God loves his creation. And every single human being has been made in God's image. And the church exists for one reason only, and that is to seek and to save the lost, to go after those that don't belong in the church. The church is the only organization that exists for the sole purpose of people that are not a part of it. Ever thought about it like that? It's great that we have each other. We, you know, we, we fellowship together. I mean, the church does all sorts of wonderful things together, why it exists. But if our primary motive is to be community, to spread out into our community, and it's not to judge and to hate like the world says we do. It's to love. It's to serve. 
to lay down our lives for these people, to show them that there is a God and he loves people. But we don't do it in word only, we do it in action, right? That's why we're big on this, like getting out there and doing something. Sharing the gospel is so much more than using your mouth. It's doing something. That's what James teaches us, right? You say you have faith because you say you believe. He's like, well, even the demons have faith, and they shudder. He goes, but let me show you what I believe by what I do. If somebody is cold, give them a blanket, right? I don't want a tract. I want a blanket. I'm hungry, right? I hope you're not the kind of person that leaves, like, the fake 20 that says Jesus loves you as a tip. It's like, oh, here's your tip. It's the gospel. That's not love, right? That's anger. That's, sorry, that's my pet peeve. You get what I'm saying? Hopefully. Maybe you don't. So let's talk about these tools of the warfare. He says the tools of his warfare are faith and a good conscience. He says, having faith and a good conscience with someone rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. The reason we can stand in adversity is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his promises. His promises are never failing. And that's why we say it's like we have to understand what the true gospel is, what the Bible really says, because that's what we can claim to. A good foundation that was put into me, and I'll tell you, I would, I'm grateful every day for it, is Thomas Sarah. It's like, Michael, it's the most important thing you can do as a young Christian is start to memorize the scripture. He goes, because you're not going to always have your Bible in front of you. And he said the same thing. Most people don't read it. He says, so you need to know what this thing says. He goes, because that's how the Holy Spirit will speak to you. He pulls up the scriptures that you have memorized, that you've read, when you're asking for advice or help, it's the scriptures that come floating up that I think about. So, because I didn't have a Christian background, I just thought this is what people did. So I went to the task of reading and memorizing the word. I mean, trying to memorize, I just didn't know of it, right? If you don't tell somebody this is tough or it's impossible, they just do it, right? It's kind of one of those weird things, like, Michael, you should memorize the Bible. So it's okay. So you start taking Ephesians. I should have practiced this half time, so I'm going to do it on the flyer. I haven't read Ephesians in a while. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heaven places according, as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him in love. And I don't want to be like this big flex, but I have just got tracks of scripture memorized. Chunks. And then when you talk to me and you ask a question, it's not me that's super awesome, but the Holy Spirit has this great well to draw from scriptures. Like, if you say a word, it's almost like a keyword search. You said, has God chosen us? I'm like, well, I can think of 50 verses. Now, where the false doctrine comes in, if I start to explain them incorrectly, but I can share the truth, the solid truth, is because I can just give some of the word. Well, the Bible says <coughs> this. That's the truth, right? That will remain. They can hold on to it. It'll minister. It'll bring life. The Bible says God's word brings health and medicine. I mean, it says all these crazy things about his word. Not my word, not Michael's word, but his word. So that's why I'm very careful. It's like, let me just give you the word, and that's what it says in open life. So that's faith. I can have faith and trust in that because I know God doesn't fail. God doesn't lose. Nobody is stronger than God. And if the worst thing that happens to me is I die, I go to be with him forever. And I trust him. Trust him. I trust him for my wife, kids, me, church So what are the weapons of my warfare? I just got to keep on standing. The winds come, arrows come in, I got to stand. And I can stand is because I'm standing on the bedrock of the truth of his word. And I know his word. And his word is in my heart. 
And I've been in tough times. I've cried the tears of pain for years for God to do something. Guess what? I'm still here. I won. My night had a morning. I didn't move. And you've heard my testimony. I told you about healing my daughter, my wife, an impossible financial situation of my, of my own doing. And praying every night for relief, healing, all those things. And then when it finally happened, I learned a lesson. It's like, man, I just stood. I don't give up. Unless God tells me no, like this, the most, I think the best thing about me is I'm just incredibly stubborn. I'll just stay there until God tells me no. Uh, because I know his word. I'm like, you said this, God. This happened. I mean, unless I've completely misunderstood it, I'm just going to stop. <clears throat> I think that's what God is after. He's like, do you believe me? Remember every time people ask Jesus for something, he's like, do you believe I'm able to do this? Remember that? Remember that, Nagi? No? I lost you. And it's so interesting that whenever someone asks Jesus, his first question is, do you believe I'm able? Go back and study that. Like, look at the healings of Jesus. And I don't really pay attention to the miracles. I pay attention to the interaction, the discourse that happens. Very revealing. Okay. And a good conscience. So one of the weapons of the devil is to convince you of all the bad things you've done. Has anyone experienced that? You're trying to do something for God, and you just remember all the terrible things you've ever done. And boy, don't we all have a list that we don't want to share with each other. Right? We all have our, our secrets, our skeletons. So the idea of a good conscience is, like, how do I stand in the, in the face of the enemy? One is knowing that you've been cleansed by the blood. The Bible says he cleanses our hearts and our minds. You have to come to the fact that you've done these things, but they're no longer you. They're forgiven. This is step one for any new believer. It's hard to believe that the terrible things you've done, they don't matter. Yes, there are still some consequences for the sin and ramifications. We get that. But your slate with you and God is clean. His blood cleanses. It's over with. If you've never heard this before, I promise you he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our faults. All God wants to hear from you is confess it. I've missed this. This is what I've done. That's when the cleansing comes in. (coughs) When I was witness to, it wasn't the story of Jesus that captivated me. I, I, I just knew very well that I was sinful. I couldn't tell you why, but something deep in my heart said I was wrong. I'm broken. I didn't know why. I had a good life. I mean, it like, wasn't a murder or anything, but when this guy was sharing the gospel with me, the weight of my own sin was so convicting in me. It's like, I didn't know what I really thought about Jesus to be. If I'm really being honest with you, the story didn't make a lot of sense to me. It's like, how can one guy die? How does this work? But isn't it funny? Like, I don't know anything, but I was convicted of my own sin. I was like, yeah, I know I'm broken. I had this great urge to get right with somebody. And when he led me into prayer, it was me confessing my sins I don't know if you've ever felt that, but that weight coming off, I, I, gosh, you just can't, I can't explain it. And to me, that's the first proof of Christianity. I was like, I never felt a release by that just by acknowledging that I've done something. And what an amazing feeling. So that's the first step in a good conscience is, is repenting. Step two is sanctification, is actually learning to do better, right? Asking the Lord to help you in your areas of weakness. Because when the enemy comes into attack, it is good to say, I'm standing on the Word of God. Because the Bible, the number one name for Satan is actually the accuser of the brethren. His number one trick, according to the Holy Scriptures, is to recant what you've done to you and to God. Have you ever read the book of Job? He said, oh, God, he doesn't sin because you protect him all the time. right? Like He's the accuser. That's his name, our adversary. And all the language of salvation actually is like a court case. right? That Jesus 
and the Holy Spirit are like our lawyer and our defense team to the most holy God, right? And the Satan is the one coming against us, accusing us. So you clean up your conscience by repentance and learning to go in the right direction, standing on the word of God. I implore you, the best thing you can do, start reading your Bible. Just start. It doesn't matter where. Actually, it does matter where. Don't start in Deuteronomy. <laughs> read James. Read the book of John. Just ponder it. You don't have to understand everything. I just don't. I've been doing this for decades. And I don't understand everything. You don't have to. There's books. There's commentaries. There's us. Community. Just start reading it, thinking it, pondering it. I use the note card system. Put a, put a scripture on a note card. I memorize that. It takes me a week. I'm not as aggressive as I used to be when I was younger, but I'll look at it over the course of a week. Two weeks, I didn't have a lot of time. There's no rush. My point is I'm moving the football down the field every single day. Amen? Okay, last thing, and we'll close up here. It says, of whom were Hymenaeus uh, and Alexander? These two people that got turned over to Satan. And I want to just say this, because a lot of people have questions about this part of the text. It's like, how do you turn someone over to Satan? Paul didn't let these people out to be tortured by Satan. What he did is he removed them from God's protection. So it's not a banishment to have them tortured. It's just removing the covering of the church from these people. These are two people here that were spreading false doctrine, that were shipwrecking people's faith. Right? They'd walked away from these things. And they were in this church at Ephesus. So he says, I've turned them over to Satan. It's not like Paul called them Satan. Hey, Satan, I got two, I got a live wire. I got two buddies I need you to get after. No, these people have been removed from fellowship. You'll find out, if you ever leave a church, and this isn't like a scare text, so please don't look like, you leave the church, Satan's going to burn your house out. No. But if you truly leave fellowship, right, you leave the community, you leave church, and you just, I'm, I'm walking all this way behind. There's two, the Bible says there's two domains in this world, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Right? When you get saved, you get pulled from one kingdom to another. The thing about the word kingdom is like king's domain, right? Kingdom, king's domain. We serve our Heavenly Father. But the Bible says the God of this world is who? Satan. The Bible says he is the God of this world, not God. Eventually Jesus will become. That happens in Revelation when he inherits all the nations back. But this is not yet. So those that belong to Jesus now are only those who have willingly bowed their knees to the new king. So to leave his kingdom, to go back into the world, is to bow your knee to another God. You're out of this kingdom and you're back into this kingdom. That makes sense? He says, I've turned them over to Satan so they can learn not to blaspheme. That protection of God's hand now is often. That's a scary place to be for me, personally. I don't know what you think about that. But that's what that text is talking about. So I don't want you to look at like, hey, if we leave the church, the elders get together and we pray that Satan attacks you. <laughs> this is not an active attack, right? This is just saying, it's like, hey, this is what happens when you leave a, a, a fellowship. And Hebrews will talk about it. There's... It brings up the questions like, once saved, always saved, or how does this work? What's Satan's role in a believer's life? And we're out of time. That thing, stop talking. <laughs> right, so what do I want you to learn from 1 Timothy chapter 1? Each and every one of you have had a flame passed to you. I showed you mine. I showed you how the gospel came to the young family. By the way, I was the first one saved. So my parents got saved, my sister got saved, my brother got saved, my other sister got saved. The gospel spread like a wildfire to my family. Because I shared the gospel with my sister, Rebecca. She's the middle sister. I'm the oldest of five. And then my parents thought we were weirdos. Right? Like they, they didn't like me. My wife didn't say they didn't like my 
sister getting saved. My, my parents have been serving the Lord now for 15 years in homeless ministries. My dad preached for the first time like, like six months ago. He's 70 years old, and he's like, I get to preach for the first time, what do I do? I'm like, don't suck. And I, was like, <laughs> I was like, I haven't figured out what to be yet either, and I've been doing this a while. Isn't it amazing what God does? That same flame has been passed to you. You have a spiritual lineage too. Somebody shared the gospel. Somebody has done something. And it's your job is to protect that flame. Paul told Timothy, remain in Ephesus. Well, I'm telling you, you've got to remain somewhere too. I'm not saying you have to remain a pillar. Stand. Fight. That gospel flame has been passed to you. That flame, just like the Olympic flame, like it goes all the way back. And it hasn't been passed to you in vain. And your life will ignite somebody else's life. And you owe it to them to give them the purest, best flame they can possibly have. Because I'm telling you, if I would have got the bad stuff at the beginning, I can't tell you I'd be standing here right now. Because right? I had multiple chances to fall away. Multiple inclinations to fall away. But it was going back to that true word that was delivered to me that I could not shake. My darkest hours when I was the furthest from God. I hate to tell you, I've got to go. But... I don't hate to tell you that, but it was my wife. I was on fire for the Lord. Then after we were married, my son was born. I started to fall away. I didn't want to go to church. I was working nights. I just didn't care. Just quit caring. My wife was going to church. We're going to this Baptist church in Phoenix. My son was baptized, not baptized, but dedicated there. My wife would drag me to church. I just didn't want to go. I hate to tell you, it's embarrassing, right? I'm the one to share the gospel with my wife. She grew up in the church, but I wanted nothing to do with it. I was like, if we're going to get married, I think you have to be saved or something. Right? It's kind of one of those things. But she was like, convinced me to go to church. We want to raise our son in the church. I was like, I wasn't. I turned out okay. I mean, I was a real but. I, this is the weirdest thing. You, you don't have to believe me. We were driving to church one day. Against my will. Driving on my 95 Honda Accord. EX. Real sweet. Great. And uh, I'm sitting there. I hear a voice. I pop my wife in here. And I hear it in my head. And it was like, you're going to be a pastor one day. I swear to you, God's honest truth. I hear this voice in my head. You're going to be a pastor one day. I looked at my wife. I was like, you know what I just thought? I didn't understand anything. I was like, I heard this thing. I'm going to be a pastor someday. We laughed all the way to church. She's like, that would be, she goes, you're not, you know, it's like, you, you know, I'm surprised you don't catch on fire when you walk into this building. And I remember when I got licensed to Norden. I thought about that moment. But it was my wife here rekindling the fire, dragging me to church, praying for me. And you all have similar testimonies. People praying for you. Like, you just may be the furthest thing from the Lord right now, and you don't know how this is going to work out. But you've got enough of the flame left. The torch, you don't want to hear this, but the torch has been passed to you. I'm urging you, don't let that fire die out. You've got to stand on something. You need this. There's days coming in this world that you're going to need to stand. You're going to have things that happen in your life. You're going to need the Lord. You're going to need a bedrock Christianity. You're going to need something true to hold on to. And you can't wait until the flames come and the fire comes. It's not a doom and gloom message. I pray it doesn't come in our lifetime. But it sure seems like that to me. Amen? Let's pray.